Section 5 of Porgy by DuBose Hayward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Denise Ray. Part 4. It was the day set for the grand parade and picnic of the sons and daughters of Repent Ye, saith the Lord, and with the first light of morning, Catfish Row had burst into a fever of preparation. Across the narrow street, the wharf, from which the party was to leave, bustled and seethed with life. A wagon rattled out to the pierhead and discharged an entire load of watermelons. Under the vigilant eyes of a committee, a dozen volunteers lifted the precious freight from the vehicle and piled it ready for the steamer. From behind the next pier, with a frenzied threshing of its immense stern paddle, came the excursion boat. Tall, open exhaust funnels flanked the walking beam and coughed great salmon-colored plumes of steam into the faint young sunlight. A fierce torrent of wood smoke gushed from the funnel and went tumbling away across the harbor. Painters were hurled, missed, coiled, and hurled again. Then, amid a babblement of advice and encouragement, the craft was finally moored into readiness for the lodge. The first horizontal rays of the sun were painting the wall a warm claret when Porgy opened his door, to find Peter already dressed for the parade and perched upon the back of his gaily blanketed horse. He wore a sky-blue coat, white pants which were thrust into high black leggings, and a visored cap, from beneath which he scowled fiercely down upon the turmoil around the feet of his mount. Across his breast, from right shoulder to left hip, was a broad scarlet sash, upon which was emblazoned, Repent ye, saith the Lord, and from his left breast fluttered a white ribbon bearing the word, Marshal. From time to time he would issue orders in hoarse, menacing gutturals, which no one heeded, and twice in the space of half an hour he rode out to the pierhead, counted the watermelons, and returned to report the number to an important official who had arrived in a carriage to supervise the arrangements. Momently the confusion increased, until at eight o'clock it culminated in a general exodus towards the rendezvous for the parade. The drowsy old city had scarcely commenced its day when down through King Charles Street the procession took its way. Superbly unselfconscious of the effect that it produced, it crashed through the slow restrained rhythm of the city's life like a wild barbaric chord. All of the stately mansions along the way were servantless that day, and the aristocratic matrons broke the ultimate canon of the social code and peered through front windows at the procession as it swept flamboyantly across the town. First came an infinitesimal negro boy, scarlet-coated and a-glitter with brass buttons. Upon his head was balanced an enormous shako and while he marched with left hand on hip and shoulders back his right hand twirled a heavy gold-headed baton then the band two score boys attired in several variations of the bandmaster's costume strode by bare splay feet padded upon the cobbles heads were thrown back with lips to instruments that glittered in the sunshine launching daring and independent excursions into the realm of sound. 
yet these improvisations returned always to the internal boom 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 of an underlying rhythm and met with others in the sudden weaving and raveling of amazing chords an ecstasy of wild young bodies beat living into the blast that shook the windows of the solemn houses broad dusty blue-black feet shuffled and danced on the many-colored cobbles and the grass between them the sun lifted suddenly over the housetops and flashed like a torrent of warm white wine between the staid buildings to break on flashing teeth and laughing eyes after the band came the men members of the lodge stepping it out to the urge of the marshals who rode beside them reinforcing the marching rhythm with a series of staccato grunts short with crisp military precision from under their visored caps breast cross slashed with the emblems of their lodge they passed then came the carriages and suddenly the narrow street hummed and bloomed like a tropic garden six to a carriage sat the sisters the effect produced by the colors was strangely like that wrought in the music scarlet purple orange flamingo emerald wild clashing unbelievably discords yet in their steady flow before the eyes possessing a strange dominant rhythm that reconciled them to each other and made them unalterably right the senses reached blindly out for a reason there was none they intoxicated they maddened and finally they passed seeming to pull every ray of color from the dun buildings leaving the sunlight sane flat dead for its brief moment out of the year the pageant had lasted out of its fretters of civilization this people had risen suddenly amazingly exotic as a congo and still able to abandon themselves utterly to the wild joy of fantastic play they had taken the reticent old anglo-saxon town and stamped their mood swiftly and indelibly into its heart then they passed leaving behind them a wistful envy among those who had watched them go those whom the ages had rendered old and wise when the exodus from the row was completed bess helped porgy out to the boat and established him in an angle of the main deck cabin where he could see and enjoy the excursion to the full below them on the wharf maria who had the direction of the refreshment committee in hand moved about among the basket and boxes looking rather like a waterfront conflagration in a voluminous costume of scarlet and orange bess left porgy and descended the ladder i got so ready hand wid bundles she announced defiantly the immense negress paused and looked her up and down well well it looks like you're trying to be decent she commented instantly the woman chilled you can go to hell she said deliberately i ain't fixin for no sermon i want a job does you want a hand with dem package or not for a moment their eyes met then they laughed suddenly loudly together with complete understanding all right den the older woman said if you is dat independent you can take dem basket on board after that they worked together until the procession arrived without the interchange of further remarks down the quiet bay like a great frenzied beetle the stern wheeler 
kicked its way. On the main deck, the band played without secession. In a ring before it, a number of Negroes danced, for the most part shuffling singingly. The sun hurled the full power of an August noon upon the oil-smooth water, and the polished surface cast it upward with added force under the awnings. The deck sagged with color, and repeated explosions of laughter rode the heat waves back to the drowsing, lovely old city long after the boat had turned the first bend in the narrow river, and passed far from view on his way to the Negro picnic grounds on Kittywar Island. Thrashing its way between far-sweeping marshes and wooded sea islands, the boat would burst suddenly into lagoon, after lagoon, that lay strewn along the coast, that blazed in the noon like great fire opals held in silver mesh. Finally, a shout went up. Kitty War lay before them, thrusting a slender war from its thickly wooded extremity into the slack tide. The deparkation over, Maria took possession of a clearing that stood in a dense forest of palmettos and fronted on the beach and marshaled her committee to prepare the lunch. From the adjacent beach came the steady, cool thunder of the sea and the unremitted hum of sand as tireless wind scooped it from the dunes and set it in low, flat-blown layers across the hard floor of the beach. The picnickers heard it and answered with a shout. Soon the streaming whiteness of the inner surf was dotted with small, glistening black bodies. The larger figures with skirts hoisted high were wading in the shallows. Porgy sat with a large myrtle bush in one hand, with which he brushed flies from several sleeping infants. The sun lay heavy and comforting upon him. One of the children stirred and whimpered. He hummed a low, bubbling song to it. There was a new contentment in his face. After a while, he commenced to nod. "'I go and get some pomata leaf for a tablecloth,' Bess told Maria, and without waiting for an answer, she took a knife from a basket and entered the dense tangle of palm and vine that walled the clearing. Almost immediately she was in another world. The sounds behind her became faint and died. A rattler moved its thick body sluggishly out of her way. A flock of wood ibis sprang suddenly up, broke through the thick roof of palm leaves, and streamed away over the treetops toward the marsh with their legs at the trail. She cut a wide fan-shaped leaf from the nearest palmetto. Behind her, someone breathed a deep, unmitterable breath. The woman's body stiffened slowly. Her eyes half-closed and were suddenly dark and knowing. Some deep ebb or flow of blood touched her face, causing it to darken heavily, leaving the scar livid. Without turning, she said slowly, Crown? Yes, you, you know very well, dis crown. The deep sound shook her. She turned like one dazed and looked him up and down. His body was naked to the waist and the blue cotton pants that he had worn on the night of the killing had frayed away to his knees. He bent slightly forward. The great muscles of his torso flickered and ran like the flank of a horse. His small, wicked eyes burned, and he moistened his heavy lips earth had cared for him well the marshes had provided eggs of wild fowl and many young birds 
The creek had given him fish, crabs, and oysters in abundance, and the forest had fed him with its many berries and succulent palmetto cabbage. "'I seen your land,' he said, "'and I've been waiting for you. I'm most dead or blonesome on this damn island, with not one God's person to swap a word with. You got any happy dust with you?' "'No,' she said. Then with an effort, crown, I got something to tell you. I done give up dope, and besides that, I sort of changed my way. His jaw shot forward, and the huge shoulder muscles bulged and set. His two great hands went around her throat and closed like the slow fusing of steel on steel. She stopped speaking. He drew her to him until his face touched hers. Under his hands her arteries pounded, sending fierce spurts of flame through her limbs, beating redly behind her eyeballs. His hand slackened, her face changed, her lips opened, but she said nothing. Crown broke into low, shaken laughter and threw her from him. "'Now come with me,' he ordered. Into the depths of the jungle they plunged, the woman walking in front with a trance-like fixity of gaze. They followed one of the now hard-packed trails that had been beaten by the wild hogs and goats that roamed the island. On each side of them the forest stood like a wall, its tough low trees and thickened body palmettos laced and bound together with wire-strong vines. Overhead the foliage met, making the trail a tunnel as inescapable as that it had been built of masonry. The man walked with a swinging, effortless stride, but his breath sounded in long, audible inhalations, as though he labored physically. When they had journeyed for half an hour, they crossed a small cypress swamp. The cypress knees jutted grotesquely from the yellow water, and trailing Spanish moss extended drab stalactites that brushed their faces as they threaded the low, muddy trail. Finally, Bess emerged into a small clearing, in the center of which stood a low hut, with sides of plaited twigs and roof of palmetto leaves laid on top of each other in regular rows like shingles. Crown was close behind her. At the low door of the hut she paused and turned toward him. He laughed suddenly and hotly at what he saw in her face. "'I know you ain't changed,' he said. "'With you and me it's always going to be the same. See?' He snatched her body toward him with such force that her breath was forced from her in a sharp gasp. Then she inhaled deeply, threw back her head, and sent a wild laugh out against the walls of the clearing. Crown swung her about and threw her face forward into the hut. The sun was so low that its level rays shot through the tunnels of the forest and bronzed its ceiling of woven leaves when Bess returned to the clearing. She paused for a moment. Behind her, screened by the underbrush, stood Crown. Now, member what I tells you, he says. You can stay with the cripple till the cotton come. Then I'm coming. Davy will hide we on the river boat far as Savannah. Then soon the cotton will be coming in fast and libin will be easy. You guess that? For a moment she looked into the narrow, menacing eyes, then nodded. Go long, then, and tote fair lest you wants to meet your god she stepped into the open already most of the party were on the boat she crossed the narrow beach to the wharf maria stood by the gangplank and looked at her with suspicious eyes 
Where you been all day? she demanded. I get lost in the woods, and I can't get my bearings till sundown. But that ain't nobody's business at me and Porgy, if you wants to know. She found Porgy on the lower deck near the stern and seated herself by him in silence. He was looking into the sunset and gave no evidence of having noticed her arrival. Through the illimitable, mysterious night, the steamer took its way. Presently, it swung out of one of the narrow channels and wallowed like an antedobellum monster into the stillness of a wide lagoon. Out of the darkness, low, broad waves moved in upon it, trailing stars along their swarthy backs to shatter into silver dust against the uncouth bows. To Porgy and Bess, still sitting silent in the stern, came only the echoes of drowsy conversations, sounds of sleeping and the rhythmic splash and drip of the single great wheel behind them. The boat forged out into the center of the lagoon, and the shoreline melted out behind it. Where it had shown a moment before could now be seen only the steady climb of constellations out of the water's rim and the soft, humid lamps of low, near stars. The night pressed in about the two quiet figures. Porgy had said no word since their departure. His body had assumed its old, tense attitude. His face wore again its listening look. Now he said slowly. You never lie to me, Bess. No, came an even, colorless voice. I never lie to you. You guess to give me dat. Another interval, then. Were it crown? A sharp, indrawn breath beside him and a whisper. How you know? God get cripple many things he ain't give strong men. Then again, patiently, wore a crown. Yes, it were. What'd he say? He coming for me when the cotton come to town. You going? I tell him. Yes. After a while, the woman reached out a hand and closed it lightly about the man's arm. Under the sleeve, she felt the muscles go rigid. What power! She tried to circle it with her hand. It was almost as big as crowns. It was strange that she had not noticed that before. She opened her mouth to speak, but no sound came. Presently she sighed and withdrew her hand. Through the immense emptiness of sea and sky the boat forged slowly towards the distant city lights. "'I got your feeling yesterday,' announced Maria to Serena Robbins as she took a batch of wet clothing from the latter's tub, gave it one twist with her enormous hands, and set it aside to go upon the line. What you got your feeling about? I got your feeling when porgy woman come out of the woods on the picnic, she done been with crown. At the mention of the murderer's name, Serena stepped back and her usual expression of sanctimonious complacency slowly changed. Her lower lip shot forward and her face darkened. You tink dat nigger on Kittawar? she asked. I always figured he'd been there in dem deep palmiters, Maria replied. But when I looked in Bess's eyes last night, I saw of two things. One, that he is there, and two, that she been with him. 
You believe she's still with that nigger? Dem sort of men's ain't need to worry about having women, Maria told her. They can lay their lash on em and kick em in the street. Then they can whistle when they ready, and their day is again licking their hand. She gonna stay with Porgy if she know what's good for her. She know all right, and she love Porgy, but if that nigger come at her, she day ain't going to be nobody round her but Porgy and a goat. A sudden dark flame blazed in Serena's face, sweeping the acquired complacency before it and changing it utterly. She leant forward and spoke heavily. That nigger best thank his God that I got my Jesus now for hold back my hand. You you ain't means that you was going to turn him up to the white folks if he come back on town instead of settling with him yourself. Maria asked incredulously. I ain't know what for do. The other replied, the hatred in her face giving way to a look of perplexity. If that nigger come to town, he's sure to get killed. Sooner or later, then the white folks gonna lock me up. They got it on the writing now that I been Robin's wife, and they gonna figure I like as not kill him. I know two people get locked up that way, and they ain't do one god thing. Nigger shall gets for keep her eye on in this world, the big niggers observed. But we can't turn no nigger over to the police. A man paused before the entrance of the court and looked in. To the two women, he was only a silhouette standing under the arch against a dazzling expanse of bay. But the foppish outlines of the indolent, slender figure were unmistakable. A smile of pleased anticipation grew about Maria's wide mouth. She dried her hands upon her apron. Just like I've been telling you, she remarked to Serena, Thank God, Jesus ain't got me yet, he got you, and I still means enough to straighten out a crooked nigger. See that yellow snake wriggling in the doorway? He the one what sell best that happy dust. Drying her hands and bared forearms with ominous thoroughness, she crossed to her shop. The room was empty when she entered. She went at once to the stove which stood in its corner with his legs set upon four bricks. She bent forward, placed a shoulder against one of its corners, gave a heave, and drew out a brick. Then she straightened up, spat first on one hand and then on the other, and carrying the brick in her immense right, lightly and with a certain awful fondness, stepped out of her door. Sporting life was now within the entrance and presenting an unsuspecting profile to the cookshop. With frightful deliberation, Maria swung her long arm back, then, like the stroke of a rattler, it shot forward. The brick caught the mulatto full on the side of the head. He crumbled among his gaudy habiliments like a stricken bird. After a space of time, the victim blinked feebly, then opened his eyes upon Maria's face. She was mopping his head with a wet rag, and his first glance discovered an expression of gentleness on her heavy features. Reassured, he opened his eyes wide, but the gentleness was gone. He felt himself gripped by the shoulders and suddenly snatched upward to be placed upon unsteady legs. 
Then he was propelled rapidly toward the gate. At the pavement's edge, Maria swung her victim around until his wandering and reluctant gaze met hers. This the last time you was around here. I ain't have nothing on you but my eyes. Now, I knows you. You damn dirty dope peddling, wrecking the homes of these happy niggers. Her arms shot forward and back like locomotive pistons. The man's head snapped to an acute angle and righted itself with difficulty. Now, when I done flinging you out this gate, she proceeded, it's the last time you was going to leave it early. Everybody say I is very true nigger, and if you ever comes round here again, drunk or sober, I ain't going to be too through with you, your carcass, until I throw your bones out to the buzzards one by one. Abruptly, she reversed the luckless man and placed a foot in the small of his back. Then with a heave that seemed to bring into place every muscle of her huge bulk, she catapulted him once and for all out of Catbush Row and the lives of its inhabitants. End of section 5